First, let's talk about the COVID-19 surcharges. Now, this week, of course, is the beginning of phase two of the Restart BC plan to get our economy going again. Hair salons and barber shops open for business once again in British Columbia. But if you go for a haircut or you go for uh, service in, in a hair salon, be prepared to pay extra because some salons are charging extra. They're charging a COVID-19 surcharge. Have a listen to this. This is from Global News the other night. I know that some people are going to be annoyed by that. It's not going to be, It's not, I don't think it's going to be well received. Some clients are not receiving it well. Some clients are going, it doesn't matter. I totally understand. I thought it was going to be more. In order to ensure that our clients are comfortable to come in to get the service, this is what we need to do. And uh, for a small business like us, we cannot survive if we do not pass some of that fee on to our clients. All right. So if you're faced with paying one of these COVID-19 charges, how would you feel about that? Would you be happy to pay it? Uh, would you be annoyed? Would you refuse to pay it? Let's talk about it now with Laura Jones. She is the executive vice president, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small business in Canada. Laura, it's nice to have you on again. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. What do you think of these charges? Well, I think you have to put this in context. First of all, you know, small business owners are incredibly uh, stressed. Even now in British Columbia, you only have a third of them fully open, and most of them have seen revenue declines. Over half have seen revenue declines of 70% or more. Many have had no revenue coming in. And so they're worried about their cash flow. They're worried about debt. They're trying to bring employees back um, online. And so in that, when you, when you put it in that context, and then you also understand that they're really concerned about making customers feel uh, comfortable. Um, we've got seven out of 10 of our members right now saying they're worried about customers, that customer um, spending is going to be way down following this crisis. Right. So no business is going to take um, the decision to raise their prices in any way um, lightly. And these additional fees, I think, um, you know, a lot of the businesses I've seen, they're being very transparent about them. them. They're trying to explain to customers why. And, you know, the other big concern we're having from small businesses on our survey is the cost of personal protective equipment and even yes. finding it. Yes. And that's adding to their uh, stress list. So I don't think small businesses are being uh, trying to be unreasonable in any way, shape, or form with their customers. And I, I really hope that people can appreciate the context in which this is happening. Well, do you, do you run the risk, though, as a business owner? You mentioned that there's a concern about depressed demand and getting the customers back in the store, getting people spending again. Do you run the risk of driving down that consumer demand even further if you hit consumers with new charges? For sure, which is why I think that um, no, no, no business is going to take this decision lightly. Right. Um, but of course, you have to, you know, you have to cu- cover your costs. And I think businesses are also really wanting to make sure that their customers feel safe. And, you know, right from the very beginning of this, um, Mike, we've been surveying every week our business owners since this started, even before the, 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 the shutdowns were fully in place and, you know, asking business owners very early what kind of actions they were already taking before the shutdowns. Um, and, you know, there was um, incredible action to get, you know, sanitizer and, you know, make sure they're cleaning more regularly and make and, and that obviously is when we lift out of this. Um, you know, businesses are also looking at that. But all of that increases the, the, the cost for businesses. Yeah. So it's not like their rent is going down. Right. <laughs> and um, particularly since um, a lot of landlords are saying they're not going to go for the rent relief program. Um, but it's not that their rent is going down. So they still have these big bills to pay. 
Right. So it would be fair to expect your customer, you have to pass on some of these costs. I mean, it's an input cost, right? I mean, that's a cost of doing doing business. If you're facing a new cost to buy like personal protective equipment, like you mentioned, um, that's an input cost on your business. Yeah. And I think that you can trust small business owners. Like they're, they're being very transparent about this. I think um, well, are, are all of them are all of them being transparent? Like, are are some? I wonder if some businesses are just putting their prices up and not like. I would rather know. I'd rather maybe see a a COVID nineteen surcharge clearly spelled out on my bill, yeah. Rather than rather than just have the price go up, you know, For at least sure. get and some think, explanation. I think many of them are are doing that. I mean, some may choose just to to you know to put up to put up prices because there are other things beyond personal protective equipment. But the thing is, small businesses work in very competitive markets. So they're, they're, you can trust that they're going to be, they're, the market discipline is going to, is going to hold them pretty accountable. Um, but I also think that, you know, a lot of them intend to, you know, as soon as they can get back, you know, to reasonable prices, you know, small business owners, they really, they value serving their, their, uh, their customers well and trying to keep prices reasonable. And there's a lot of discipline on that. They know their customers can go to Walmart. They know their customers yes. can go um, to other small businesses to get the same services. So there's a fair amount of accountability naturally baked into the system when you look at things compared to, say, the ferries putting on a fuel surcharge uh, that may or may not ever come off, right? Yeah. Um, so it only goes right. up, right? It never comes down when gas prices that are all-time low. We're not getting a fuel j- discount. I mean, right. just to use a, a, a contrary example. Speaking to Laura Jones, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, just really quickly, Laura, and then we'll take a break and take some phone calls. How are small businesses doing this? This pandemic has just been the most terrible thing that we're all suffering through, and it just drags on and on. How are businesses doing overall? Well, um, Mike, it's, you know, it's been incredibly difficult for businesses. Um, I, businesses are really stressed. We're getting a lot of comments from businesses saying this is like watching my life's work circle the drain. I mean, businesses are such a small business owners by nature are kind of a resilient lot. You're seeing some of that, but this has really been a body blow for small business. There's no question. I mean, I, we ask a question week after week, what worries you most about COVID-19? And I mean, the list of, of worries is so long and the stress is so high. I mean, the only, you know, there's one little bit of good news as reopening is starting. I would say that we've got slightly less pessimism. I wouldn't say that it's more optimistic. I'm not ready to go there yet, um, but slightly less pessimistic. Businesses are so anxious to get back to making sales. Continue talking about COVID-19 fees and surcharges. Call me on that right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. My guest is Laura Jones, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Let's go right to your phone calls. Hi, Steve. Hey, how you doing? Great show again. Thank you. Hey, first of all, I'm not cutting my hair till the prime minister cuts his hair. <laughs> okay. But right. but beyond that, you know what? It's a calculated business decision, and it always involves a little bit of risk. Yeah. So what they, of course, what they risk is losing a customer and potentially losing a customer forever. Um, so that, that's my first thought about it. The other thing is, you know, I I'm in a business where we have to prep every day to receive people, and it's. Um, it's a it's a job, but you know we've got a format and a, you know we've got it all figured out. Uh, it's not rocket science. Um, it, it's just you do the same thing every day, over and over again. Um, so um, I think it's stretching it 
uh, to think that it's it's uh, something complicated about it. Yeah. But the other thing, the other thing I'm thinking too is this might be appropriate for more high-end salons, um, who um, you know, who whose customers potentially have more disposable income. Maybe. Uh, and I, I think uh, going forward, anybody that owns a salon or a business that is considering a surcharge, they think very hard about their long-term. Um, business model. Okay, Steve, thank you for the call. Laura, let me get your take on that. What do you think about that? I mean, is this a risk for businesses who add one of these surcharges? Absolutely. I think Steve is is, is absolutely right. And I think that's why you're going to see some businesses choose to do it based on, on their circumstances and, and probably many others not doing it. Um, but what we do know is that these additional costs are a challenge for businesses right now. And it's not just right. the additional costs of the, of the of personal protective equipment, which I think as time goes on, uh, the market will, there'll be more suppliers and the prices of that will come down and those challenges will work themselves out. Um, but it's not just that, it's also the reduced capacity. You know, so mm-hmm. if you've, <laughs> if you're a restaurant or a hairdresser and, you know, you've built your business model on having a certain number of clients, um, come through the door and we know with, um, you know, as we reopen, that a lot of businesses are being asked not to be at full capacity. So that right. that adds to costs as well. Sure. So, there, you know, there's a big context here. But I, I agree with Steve. And I think, look, every business owner, they know their customers. And the thing about small businesses, they're not on the 25th floor of some office tower. They know their customers' names. And so they're going to make these decisions and they're going to figure out how to communicate with their uh, with their own customers appropriately right. around these issues. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Small businesses are right on the front line looking their customers in the eyes, right, every day. So, hey, if you start charging fees that your customers don't like and you see an immediate impact on your how many people coming through your door, uh, you know, there could be quickly recalibrated. But... I, like I'm looking at one tweet I just got from a guy listening, and he, and he says COVID charges are a deal breaker for me. He says raise the price if you need to charge more, but adding a service fee just reeks of dishonesty. I don't know. I think it might be the other way around. Like what, yeah. if you did, if you add the aren't you aren't you being more honest if you add the service charge? Like you add a line item on the bill saying we're charging you extra because of this pandemic, or are you I, being I, uh, and instead of just jacking up the, the the price without telling people why, I feel like you're right um, on that, and that it is yeah. more transparent. And if you expect it to be a temporary um, charge, as long as let's say everyone in the business has to make, wear a mask, and you're providing those masks, then if it's a temporary charge, and right now, you know, some of this stuff is not as cheap as you would think. Um, yeah. Now that'll change over time too, and then you know, as conditions change, you know, people are going to adapt. But the reality is, we're in a new world, and I, you know, I kind of like Bonnie Henry's approach to this when she says, "Be kind." Like, yes. you know, try to understand the context, and 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 let's be kind to each other and communicate. And you know, for customers where this is a, a deal breaker, you know, that's fair. And um, hey, it's you your know, choice. You don't want it. You don't want choice. You don't That's want to right. shop in a store. You don't want to. You don't want to pay the surcharge in a salon. You don't have to. Let's uh, squeeze in another call here. Benny on the open line. Hi, Benny. Hi, Mike. Yeah, Hi. I wish people would stop crying and complaining. You know, we're in a very unique situation, and the cost of doing business in Canada is very high. These small yeah. businesses have to 
do extraordinary uh, expenses to to protect the customer and the client. And yep. I like to see the, the charge on there because when this is all over, the charge will be removed. Drop These it. people need to make a living. These people need to m- make sure it's safe for their clients. So if you don't like the, the extra charge, stay at home and do the damn service yourself. Okay. All right, Benny. Thank you, man, for a good call. You could always do the old bowl cut at home. Put the put the salad bowl on your head and do a, a haircut at home. Uh, 30 seconds, uh, Laura, I guess you agree with them, right? Oh, I totally agree yeah. with them. I mean, I, I look, businesses, and please be kind to the small business owners. They have been through... They've been through hell. I mean, this has been so difficult, um, and many of them have not had the financial support, any financial support, and they've had the stress of that and the stress of worrying about their employees and and their businesses okay. and their futures. So be kind. Laura, thank you for coming on. Thank you. All right, that is Laura Jones. She is the Executive Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small business in Canada. Thank you for your phone calls on that one. All right, welcome back. Time for Baldry's Beat with Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, we just covered the live announcement of TransLink mm-hmm. and some of the new plans for COVID-19 on the transit system recommending face masks be worn on buses and SkyTrain. Not mandatory. Nope. Not mandatory that some people were calling for. Recommended. Now, I'll tell you what. We just had some interesting phone calls on the open line from people phoning and saying, hey, I'm disabled. I cannot wear a mask. Or I've got asthma. I can't yep. wear a mask. This is something Bonnie Henry's talked about too, right? Yes. So Dr. Bonnie Henry says she does. She is not in favor of making mask wearing mandatory precisely because of those reasons, that there are a number of people for a variety of reasons who cannot wear a mask. I've been uh, six emails yesterday um, from people who say they've got severe asthma. They cannot wear a mask. It just literally um, suffocates them. It might be more common than people... I think, it is. I think it is. And, oh. and and people can't wear masks for a number of reasons. And so that's why it's not mandatory. And I hope we don't. Now, the, the advice from Dr. Teresa Tam, the, the National Public Health Officer, is recommended to wear a mask when you can't achieve physical distancing measures, those, those two meters. And that likely is in a TransLink situation, a, a transit situation <coughs> on SkyTrain or on buses. Uh, the recommendation is you should wear a mask. But in terms of forbidding people from getting on transit because they haven't got a mask on, we're not going to go there. Yeah, and I think more and more people are wearing a mask anyway. Like one of the things the TransLink official said today was they want to build a culture of people wearing a mask on transit. And I think you're already seeing that. Like if you go on the SkyTrain now, okay, you're just, you got yours, your own mask in your pocket. I just brought my mask in, my wife made. She's a great seamstress. So she's made a bunch of masks. So I'm carrying this mask around with me from now on. I'll be wearing it from time to time, but it's not, again, 100% of the time. Yeah, it's it's interesting how the public perception of it has changed because I, I think maybe in the past there was a stigma. If you saw someone wearing a mask, yeah. you might think, ooh, maybe that person's sick. I should stay away from them. Now, maybe I wonder if it's now kind of flipping around the other way. Like, you're, you'd probably be safer if you're if someone is wearing a mask near you. Yeah, I think you're going to see more and more people wear masks, and we're seeing that on a daily basis. And, and you're right. At the very beginning, the, per, the person wearing the mask was, oh, uh, sort of an outlier. Like, yeah. oh, that person. Or either seen as, you know, you're taking this way too seriously, or you're ill. That is now flipped around. And again, psychology plays such a big role in this pandemic as we yeah. go move along. Our behavior is changing constantly. I mean, yeah. again, we talked about this before. Who would have imagined that we'd willingly line up at six foot intervals to get into a supermarket for for 20 minutes or something right. it's just or one-way shopping aisles so we're doing things now we never thought possible before and wearing masks i think is going to be much more commonplace. okay lots more changes on the translink system as well translink announcing today that they will have more deep cleaning 
of the SkyTrain vehicles and transit vehicles. And they're doing it in front of the public. So yeah. th- these vehicles are usually cleaned overnight. We're in told. The dead of night. We're told, yeah. Um, I, just, I had a call from a, a woman. Her husband's a bus driver. She says her, her husband's bus is filthy. You know, even after they supposedly cleaned it the well, night before. If so, I think those days are over. Now you're going to see public uh, cleaning done by teams of four, according to the TransLink, yeah. uh, in front of the public. Yeah, and that they're trying to uh, create public confidence in the system as well yeah. by, by doing that. Also, limiting uh, the amount of traffic on SkyTrain platforms. It'll be interesting to see how that works. I think they need more hand sanitizer on the, on the SkyTrain system. They're trying to get more hand sanitizing stations going. It'll be interesting to see on SkyTrain platforms. They're, they're limiting the number of people who can go through the gates. Right, right. Um, but I'm not entirely clear how it's going to look on the other side of the gate. When you've got, no. you've uh, ever been to the Broadway um, SkyTrain line at rush hour, yeah. that thing is just jammed with people. And I'm not sure how you physically distance people uh, who can't get in through the gate because of crowd limitations. It sounds to me like there's going to be a big crowd very bunched together on the other side of the gate. Let's talk about Horgan's news conference yesterday where he talked about a number of things. It was interesting availability with him yesterday. One of the things he talked about was sick leave so if you are sick and you're not coming to work should you be getting some kind of pay sick pay and uh greg in your rundown there the first uh clip of horgan here is horgan on sick leave it's certainly on the table uh i don't i'm not ruling out anything i still believe that this should be a national program with national leadership because it has national consequences Uh, but we're prepared to go it alone if need be Okay, yeah, he's saying maybe we'll go it along. He wants the feds to do what? Sick pay? Yeah, come up with a, a national program to ensure that employees who stay home sick, and that this is the new part of the new normal, you don't go to work if you're sick because you may have COVID-19. But many employees, uh, particularly non-union places, are not protected by staying home, and their employer will... So you don't show up, you don't get paid. You don't get paid, even run the risk of being <clears throat> being fired. And this is one of the reasons the one of the uh, poultry processing plants outbreak began is because workers were afraid to stay home because they thought they'd be financially penalized, and one of them came to work with COVID-19 and infected everybody else. And that's a situation that right now is deemed to be absolutely intolerable. You cannot allow that to happen. But there's nothing in legislation um, to protect employees. So Horgan is talking about going alone. Today, the prime minister at his daily news conference addressed this and, and seemed to indicate that the feds are not walking away from this. They are interested in partnering with with uh, the provinces on this. And given the fact that every day comes another huge funding announcement from Ottawa and the fact that such a program uh, as protecting workers from uh, being dinged financially for staying home sick would be enormously expensive. I wouldn't take rule this, this is off the table in terms of the Fed participation. Where, where does where does it end though? Where where does this money train? Good question. Money train end. Yep. I mean, Horgan just the other day announced a pandemic pay top, top up, up for people who are. I mean, we're not even talking people who are out of work. No, these are essential service workers. We're, we're who are talking. Working. We're talking about frontline essential workers. Two hundred and fifty thousand frontline workers mm-hmm. in BC who are already working, already getting paid. And, and Horgan comes out of nowhere and says, "I'm going to top up your pay. I'm going to give you even more money." Well, when like, you're, where where does it end, or does it ever end? I mean, <laughs> we're we're in a situation now that is just unfathomable. Uh, for years, we were we were fixated. Everybody was fixated. All the political parties, everybody in the media, on whether the balance the budget is going to be balanced. Uh, it's been balanced by a razor thin margin the last few years, and under the liberal. How watch much as is well. the deficit now? 
at least five billion. I would say it's going to be approaching ten billion. The BC Business Council. The BC. Thought, this is the provincial deficit. Yeah. Well, and the federal the federal deficit is going to be two hundred sixty billion. I mean, yeah, we were, and, the we were, de- and the debt's gone to a trillion. We were arguing in the last federal election campaign whether the Trudeau's budget was going to be more than thirty billion dollars in deficit or under, and that seemed to be a big deal. Well, you know, that's just uh, almost uh, gone by a power of ten. It seems like the voices of people who are saying, "Well, hang on a sec, is this going? You know, where where does this end? Where does the where does the money the money train stop?" Mm-hmm. Um, seem to be in the kind of mi- minority. I mean, the, cons- now, the the federal conservatives kind of raise it and don't seem to get a whole lot of traction on it. Zero traction. L- last opinion polls. Well, I wouldn't say seen. zero, but they're not getting much. Well, they're they're dropping in the polls. The liberals are riding very yeah. high in the last yeah. few opinion polls we've seen. Uh, governments right now are seen, and we've talked about this many times, are seen as lifesavers. And it yeah. doesn't matter what political party's in charge. It's like, help me, because there's 400,000 people out of work in B.C., uh, they want the government to help them. They don't care about the deficit. They don't care about the debt. They just need literally the means to survive, and that's what governments are expected to do. Do you right think now. Trudeau and the Liberals in the back rooms are thinking about election timing with all this going There's on? There's more speculation about that, but I don't know. I think that's pretty risky to have an election in the middle of a, a pandemic. What about in the pen- spring? Well, you know, I, like a year from now. Like I say, don't t- take nothing off the table in the yeah. pandemic. Every, expect the unexpected has been my mantra since day one, and I've not been uh, proven wrong. Okay, let's go more from Horgan. Here's Horgan talking about the B.C. legislature being recalled and what that's going to look like. I suspect we're going to see lots of uh, Hollywood squares or Brady Bunch type uh, uh, images of multiple MLAs that are in different parts of the legislature or different parts of the province participating in the, uh, the dynamics of the democracy of British Columbia. It's going to be an innovative time. It's going to be a challenging time. I think it'll be an exciting time. Okay, you and I are old enough to know what Hollywood squares <laughs> All I know is that if we want a Hollywood Squares comparison, I figure Adrian Dix is Wally Cox. That's my, that's my link there. Yeah, I'll take Paul Lynn to block. Remember that? <laughs> Paul Lynn, Charlie Weaver. Yeah, yeah, so his reference to this is that a number of MLAs are going to be participating in legislative debates and votes, but through... Uh, It'll be like a Zoom meeting, right? Virtual, virtual meetings. Zoom yeah. meetings, Skype. Um, yeah. Uh, talk to Mike Farnworth about this. They're, they're going to employ the physical distancing measures in the legislature. Well, there's 87 MLAs, which means they can't all fit in there. They've done the measurements. He figures there could be about 30 MLAs at any given time to be in the House, minimal staff, to ensure everybody's two meters apart. It's sitting two, two desks between every MLA. And I think that's going to be a maximum. I don't think there's going to be a lot of MLAs in there. And, and the it, other MLAs will be online? Either in their offices, online, okay. uh, at home, and they not, can still can they still vote? Or you got yeah. So the plan is uh, tentatively is trying to figure out a way to have all the votes taken at, at one time, not not throughout the course of a day, but um, have the. Votes. You got to be in there to vote. No, you can do it virtually. They, oh. they, they're gonna, I think they're going to change this. I mean, the MLAs can do what they want in terms of the orders. They can change the standing orders. Well, they would have to change the rules, wouldn't they? Uh, like gonna, right now, if you like, if you get locked out of the out yep. of the house, you you can't vote. So can I, you? no, you can't. And that's why I think they are going to change the standing orders to allow virtual voting. Yeah, and allow people say six thirty every night. And there's not going to be a lot of votes. So what we're talking about here: minimal pieces of legislation and spending estimates of ministries. That's let me it. let me ask you this real quick, and then we'll take some phone calls. Uh, you got into a Twitter debate as you are wont to do. <laughs> um, on restaurants and okay, so under these rules, if you go to a restaurant, you have to, one one member of your party has to leave a, a name and a phone number. So just in case they need to contact trace you later, mm-hmm. if there's a COVID nineteen uh, outbreak at your restaurant, and some people are raising privacy concerns about that. 
your thought, including the former attorney general on, on Twitter, Suzanne Anton, Suzanne Anton, me former, about that, saying it was a, a drip, a slow drip of the erosion of their of our freedoms. And I, what thought, do you think of that? I thought it was ridiculous. I mean, right now, if you phone a, re a restaurant to make a reservation, you give them your phone number. Uh, you're pri to anyone thinking that they're somehow uh, got this cherished privacy in the modern world is is ridiculous. If you're if you have a BC Hydro account, the government knows a lot about you. If you've got a driver's license, the government knows a lot about you. I know everything on, about you. If you're on Facebook. <laughs> Believe me, you have no privacy. Facebook knows everything. If you Google things, you have no privacy. Privacy is uh, is a myth for like, many things. Wouldn't you want to like if I if I go to a restaurant and I I'd want to know if there I was a COVID. Want, I would want to know if there was a, a positive. And it's case. not the government taking this information. The restaurant is required, if practical, is the way the, the, the it's worded. It's not mandatory. If practical, take the contact information of one person in a party and keep right. it on file for thirty days. The restaurant. Don't give it to the government. Just keep it on file in case there's a COVID nineteen outbreak that affects and the restaurant or, or or the individuals. They can trace back everybody who's been in contact. Okay. With each other. Keith Baldry is my guest. Your calls to him six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight toll free on your cell. Just real quickly, this thing on Twitter about you're going to play. A basketball, one-on-one -on -one <laughs> basketball against Horgan? I don't know what's going on here. It started with Horgan jokingly trash-talking me at last week's briefing on schools going back and uh, saying that, uh, reference to basketball, saying, I've got a hoop in my backyard. You're welcome to try to get around me, Baldry. Uh, but the only way you're doing that is if you employ social distancing measures. People have picked up on that and suddenly turned this into, and I blame Richard Zussman, my colleague at Global, for turning this into suddenly a game of one-on-one -on -one or horse for charity against John Horgan. It blew up on Twitter last night. I'm not sure what's what's going to happen here. but um, You used to play a lot of basketball. Cause I, I remember I you used ball, to, yep. you'd be at a pickup game. Weren't there some politicians playing in a pickup John Horgan. basketball? So Horgan. in the 90s, I used to play a weekly pickup game with uh, – with John Horgan and Adrian Dix and other members of the NDP, uh, back in the, in the early 90s, Mike Harcourt, the former NDP premier, convened a weekly Wednesday noon game that involved social credit. It was nonpartisan. Uh, uh, politicians from all parties all and parties, the press gallery okay. had Important this vigorous one-hour <laughs> game that sometimes got a little dirty uh, on Wednesdays uh, before the House convened in the afternoon, and it was, uh, it was a, a, a weekly ritual. So... Yeah, Horgan and I and Dix and others uh, have played ball in the past, so maybe that's going to be a resurrection. So but I'll tell you, it's a lot different. Horgan and I now, we both joke, our knees are nowhere near the what they were back in the day when we used to play a full court game. Okay, looking forward to seeing if this is going to happen. Tim on the open line. Hi, Tim. Uh, morning, guys. I uh, wanted to ask you... Um, what you're hearing with this pandemic, and you were mentioning about the monies that have been poured out and the deficit debt question, but I wonder if uh, what you guys are hearing about any appetite for the universal basic income and whether technology, a lot of jobs, people have been laid off, are coming back, mm -hmm. and whether that's politicians are talking about that. And very quickly, long live Paul Lynn. Thanks, guys. Paul Lynn. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, Paul Lynn, a big Paul Lynn fan. Yeah, well, guaranteed uh, income, very interesting question. We now, right now, have a de facto guaranteed national income program with the CERB, the Canada Emergency Response temporary. Benefit. It's temporary right now. We'll see it keep, uh, but I think it's going to get extended. Uh, one of the problems with it is that it actually is, it provides more money than a lot of people make part time. And I've heard from a number of small business owners who can't rehire their, their, their part time, uh, workforce because they're making more money with the CERB than they would if they came in. How is that taxes. sustainable? 
Well, and this is, again, a lot of this stuff, I think, is just made up as you go along. I mean, John Horgan put it very well early on in this pandemic. We're making it up as we go along because we've never been through anything like this. And I think yeah. Trudeau's making it up as we go along. And that's not a, as a, a means of criticism. It's just like they're trying to frantically keep people's heads above water. And so the first thing that came out was the CERB. And that's going to get revisited. I think it'll be extended, maybe not as much as it is now. But um, it's uh, and same with the 75% wage subsidy. These things are just made up almost overnight. And uh, we're just going to see how well they work. And that includes provincial response as well. There's, there's a guy named Rahm Emanuel. You remember him? Who I think he was, was he the Chicago. mayor of Chicago? Yeah, and he former was chief of staff to uh, Obama. He was Obama's right hand man, and he had a famous quote: "You never let a crisis go to waste." That's right. So you know, if and right now we're certainly in a crisis, and I, I wonder if there's some, pro- if you want to call them progressive forces, left wing forces, whatever, uh, thinking like this is the opportunity for something like a universal basic income. Or I saw the prime minister of New Zealand the other day, Jacinda Ahern, saying. We should go to a four-day four work, work week, week. Yep. after this pandemic is I, over. Everything's on the table, folks. I mean, I, again, we've been saying this is my mantra. Expect the unexpected. Nothing can be ruled out. Uh, the old way is not coming back. Thanks for coming in. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, we'll look forward to that basketball game. We'll see what's going to happen with that. Keith Baldry, and that is Baldry's Beat. Let's talk about back to school in British Columbia. BC kids getting set to go back to class on Monday, June 1st. Now, we'll only be on a part-time voluntary basis bc has had a lot of success here in driving down the infection rate of covid19 so the government says it is safe to go back to school at least on a voluntary part-time basis government has announced a lot of measures to keep schools clean keep kids apart to prevent an outbreak and spread of covid19 in our school system bc is kind of an outlier on this most other provinces in canada have canceled the remainder of the current school year. Just about every other province has done that, including the Ontario this week. Ontario Premier Doug Ford announcing this week that they will cancel the remaining school year in Ontario. Most other provinces have done the same thing, with the exception of Quebec. There's some school classes going on in Quebec. But B.C., uh, we're getting ready to go back to school here on Monday, June 1st. That's a week from this Monday. Is that a good idea? I'm hearing... More and more from teachers, parents, uh, somewhat worried about this. Yesterday on the on the show, I spoke to the president of the Surrey uh, Teachers Association who expressed a lot of concerns about going back to school. Let's check in with Patty Backus now. She is the former chair of the Vancouver School Board. She is now an education columnist at the Georgia Strait. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Patty, thanks for doing this. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me back on. What are you hearing from teachers about going back to school on June 1st? Oh, there's a lot of concerns. Um, you know, I think I really heard it. So the, the, the announcement came just before the May long weekend that, that schools would be partially going back to class. And then, of course, early this week, um, Ontario, they announced, uh, Doug Ford announced that they were closing till September and, and teachers were starting to raise the alarm about lack of clarity around how the safety protocols from uh, the Center for Disease Control would be implemented in schools. There's still many, many unanswered questions. Um, everything from masks not being required or recommended on school sites, uh, the difficulty of having children physically distance. Who's going to do yeah. this increased cleaning that they're promising when we know that uh, most school boards have limited custodial staff to do that? So, 
so many unanswered questions and a lack of clarity. And now I'm hearing parents also concerned. And there's a, a petition, an online petition that was started by a parent and has now surpassed 20,000 signatures in just a couple of days, uh, opposing going back in June and that we should instead wait till September. So it seems to be shaping up to be, I would say, one of the most controversial aspects of the government sort of pandemic plan. Yeah, I think it is controversial, and there may be pressure on the government here to reverse course on it. We'll see in the, in the days ahead. But the line from the government right now, and I, and I just got a, a text message here in the, in the last uh, 30 minutes from an official in the education ministry, knowing we were going to talk about this, um, saying that, the reason the schools are opening in British Columbia is because the government is confident that it's going to be safe and that they're following the advice of Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, who has also said that she believes this can be done safely. You're not convinced? Well, you know, I tuned in last night. Rob Fleming was on a town hall for the province. It was hosted by Ravi Talam, an MLA for, for Delta, from North Delta. Uh, he Fleming was joined by the president of the BC School Trustees Association and a doctor from the uh, Vancouver Island Health Authority, I believe. Uh, they took a lot of questions about the plans and really didn't have great solid answers. So, I mean, I think the concern is that, well, Dr. Henry, I think we all have a lot of confidence in her leadership has made uh, clear protocols or, or have been issued for schools to follow, but the the gap seems to be in who is responsible for implementing those protocols and how are they being communicated. And what I'm hearing from teachers, and you probably are too, is it's a real mess out there. They're not getting clarity. There, Some of them are being told they have to figure it out on their own. They're not being supplied with any kind of protective equipment. Uh, no assurances that they're uh, will be space or, uh, for students to social, physically distance in their classrooms. Um, a lot of conflicting information. For example, Premier Horgan said yesterday that employers shouldn't be pressuring employees to come back to work if they don't feel ready. Yet teachers right. are being ordered to come back to their work sites. They're not getting a choice. So, you well, know, and suddenly the place. Uh, uh, if they have <laughs> underlying health issues, right? Like if you're if you're a teacher's. I don't know, you're diabetic, you have some suppressed immune system or something, and you're concerned about going back to class and being exposed potentially to the virus, that they'll work that out with you and that you would be allowed to continue to work from home. But, you know, I also wonder, though, about let's let's say a teacher has a family member who has a, a, a compromised immune system or an underlying health condition. Would that qualify for that teacher you know, working from home? Well, I think these are all questions that haven't been clearly addressed, you know, including the ones of who's going to do the cleaning and is it really safe for kids to play on their school playground equipment? Those things, those playgrounds have been closed for the last two months and now they're being told it's, it's fine for kids to use them. So I think that lack of consistency and clarity is creating a lot of anxiety, um, you know, and in fairness, these everything is moving quickly. And I understand that school districts haven't had a lot of time to work on their plans. But we're talking about going back a week from Monday and people are rightly concerned and want answers. And parents are telling me they're concerned that they're being asked now by their school districts whether or not they plan to send their kids back. But they don't have the information about what the safety plans are yet. And the, on the other hand, well, the school districts say they need to know how many kids are going to be there because that will affect their uh, plans. So it's a tricky time. I mean, I'm sympathetic to everyone trying to make this thing work. It's tough. I'm, and I'm glad I'm not having to do it myself. But uh, I think there's so many areas that aren't clear yet that that is leading to this opposition that seems to be growing to the plan to go it's back. Going, it's going to be. June. 
It's going to be interesting to see how many kids actually do show up for class on June 1st, if there is this kind of level of anxiety out there. Now, just looking at the information sent to me by the government this morning here, Patty, says that in the Metro Van, there's a Metro Vancouver uh, school district survey uh, that said that suggested over half, over half of the kids are planning to show up for school on Monday, June 1st. That's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids, and that also requires a lot of staffing and a lot of planning and a lot of supplies. Um, So that's, you know, it's a big task. It's a big ask for school districts to be ready for that and to have those plans in place and have them clearly communicated. Um, And, yeah, I'm going to be really interested to see how many show up and and how well it works and if parents are comfortable with with the protocols that are in place. Do you think that other, we've seen other provinces, as you mentioned, have announced that they are going to scrap the remainder of the school year and maybe they open in September, uh, notably Ontario this week uh, confirming that. But if you take a look at the infection rate from this uh, pandemic and compare it to British Columbia, like in Ontario yesterday, they had 400 uh, new COVID-19 cases. BC had 21 new cases. Is that an argument for opening our schools, that the infection rate seems to have been driven down more effectively here in BC? Well, I have a lot of confidence in Dr. Henry's decision-making on this, and I would never challenge uh, someone who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to epidemiology. That's that's sort of outside of my my wheelhouse in terms of, of whether it's appropriate from a public health perspective, but I, I don't think we'd be doing this if it wasn't seen to be safe. To me, the question is if school districts were able to strictly follow the protocols set out by Dr. Henry's department, that would be fine. My concern is I'm not sure they're going to be able to, and I'm not sure that they're communicating that well to parents and to their own employees who are telling me it's a mess. Um, so that's that's the gap. What's the biggest what's the biggest part of the mess? Like, what's the biggest concern that you're hearing? A lack of clarity and planning. Um, I had a, a teacher who was a counselor contact me to say uh, they had, you know, asked their administrator, well, how, how am I expected to meet with students in my very small office? Um, is there an alternative space? And they were told, you, you have to go figure this out. Um, I've had parents say that they've asked questions of their school districts that they wanted answered before they responded to the survey, asking if they would be sending their kids back, who were told, you know, go look at a video or go look at our online stuff, and they weren't really answered. So, you know, even the questions about uh, how we're going to juggle workload for teachers, for example, if, if they're teaching, if half the kids are back in class and they're being taught in small groups, um, but yet the government is telling parents they can also continue re- remote learning. Who's going to be supporting that remote learning if teachers are in class with students most of the time? So that's not clear. The cleaning protocols aren't clear. Uh, the distancing uh issues in classrooms if you look at the size of a classroom and try to figure out how you're going to keep kids six feet apart or two meters apart uh that's that still hasn't been worked out and we're very close to okay having them show up for class do you think therefore that they would be wiser to just write off the rest of the school year i mean we're only talking about four weeks of class and in in terms of like like a high school kid we're told they're going to go to school for one day a week so you're talking like four instruction yeah. days. I mean, is it even well, worth it? Well, and it, that, that's not even consistent. I understand in Vancouver they're not even asking about high school kids coming back. They will be contacted if they believe they need that support. 
Um, it's a dry run. I think you know a lot of the purpose of this is a dry run to see yeah. what works and what doesn't before right. they go back in September, which makes some sense, but that also suggests it's a bit of an experiment. So do you, do you uh, think they should scrap run. it? Do you think they should scrap the school year? I, I, you know what? I don't really know. I'm, I'm split. I think for a lot of kids, it will be great to be able to go back. I think they, you know, a lot, a lot of them will need that contact. It's a chance to check in before the end of the year, and I think that could be really helpful for a lot of them just from a mental health perspective. Right. Uh, it's a chance to reconnect to some extent, although there's no guarantee they'll be with their regular teachers. Um, I think there's some benefits for sure. Um, however, do the risks, you know, outweigh the benefits? That I don't know. I'm glad I don't have to make these decisions. I, I wake up every day thinking, my lucky stars, I'm no longer chairing a school board right now because these are tough decisions and I think everyone's under a lot of stress. And let's remember, a lot of people are pretty traumatized. It's been a tough couple of months and a lot tougher on some than others. So people are already on edge and any kind of pressure, particularly for those who don't feel they have a choice. And by that, I primarily people who work in the schools. It's, it's, it's rattling them, and I, I get that, and I, I don't have an, a simple answer to it. I don't think okay. it's a simple problem. Talking about back to school in British Columbia, Monday, June 1st. That is the date the BC school set to reopen on a part-time voluntary basis. Do you think it's a good idea, if you are a parent with kids in the school system, will, you, will, your, will your kids be going back to class? If you're a teacher in the school system, do you have concerns about it? Phone me right now, 604 280 9898 is the number. 604 280 9898. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. Patty Backus is my guest. Let's go to your phone calls. Hi, Mark. Oh, hey, Mike. Uh, thanks Hi. very much for taking my call. Big sure. on your show. So I've got two kids in elementary. Uh, so, yeah, um, I will be sending them back. I think for me, um, it seems like the numbers are showing, you know, kids really are not generally affected in a fatal way um globally it seems like the data is saying that it's it's really the older and immunosuppressed people so to me i really don't see much of a risk here and i think we've kind of done the big broad brush stroke which i think was really effective at you know um you know pushing down the curve and i think now we need to be a little more targeted with our approach and you know where there's low risk in the case of kids i think we should open things up and then just put more resources on protecting those who are you know higher risk for the virus Mark, thank you very much for calling in. Patty, I've heard that argument as well, that children are less at risk from the virus. And I, I take your point earlier that, you know, we don't want to, you don't want to start challenging an expert like Bonnie Henry on this, who is an epidemiologist. But that argument that the virus is less threatening to children, does that give you some comfort with schools opening again? Well, I think that's an important factor. But again, a lot of a lot of students and a lot of staff members live with people who may be immunocompromised or elderly, and that's the concern is whether student, uh, children don't seem to be as affected, and I'm not clear on sort of the transmission role. I don't think it's it's high, but again, it's it's more it's more people in a building, and it's not just kids. It's the staff there as well, yeah. um, and that can be a concern, I think, for those who are you know, being very cautious. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm immunocompromised and, and mm-hmm. I'm not uh, expanding my bubble just yet. And I'm being very cautious and I'm glad I'm not being directed to report to a school site. So I can understand that those concerns for sure. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Hi, Lonnie. Hello. Hi there, go ahead. Um, school buses. Have yeah. any of these people 
been on a school bus, it is absolutely impossible to do social distancing on a school bus. There's one door in and out. That's it, people. There's no room to move around. These kids lick the windows. They touch the seats. They're all over each other. Forget it. One kid per seat, you're not six feet apart. Who's going to monitor this? A driver stuck behind a piece of plastic? This whole thing is ridiculous. And who's ever dreaming this up is going to have a good look in the mirror. All right, Lonnie, thanks for the call. Patty, what do you think about that? Actually, Horgan was asked about, or Bonnie Henry was asked about school buses the other day, and she said, well, this is something that will have to be monitored, and parents should should also play a role in that, making sure they're not sending their kid to school if the, if the kid has got the sniffles or showing any kind of symptoms. Well, I think that's, that's, those are the areas where people get concerned when their yeah. parents are suddenly told they should be monitoring things and someone's going to monitor it, but it's not clear who's going to do that. Um, obviously, as the, as the caller suggested, it's the, the drivers can't be monitoring uh, physical distancing while they're driving a bus if they're going to do so safely. Uh, I have read in some places they're recommending parents try to transport kids by private vehicle or, of course, walk or other means if that's possible. But, you know, that's not an option in a lot of school districts where uh, families rely on school bus service to get their kids to school. Patty, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Anytime, Mike. Uh, all right. That is Patty Backus. She's the former Vancouver School Board Chair. She is the education columnist at the Georgia Strait. Let's talk about an increase in racism during the COVID-19 pandemic. Vancouver police reporting an increase in reported hate crimes uh, in the city since the pandemic uh, has happened in our province. We see on your nightly newscast lots of video of disturbing attacks and assaults and racist language being thrown around. Uh, earlier this week, there were reports of a business owned by uh, some Korean Canadians in the city of Parksville on Vancouver Island that was uh, targeted with racist uh, graffiti. Have a listen to this. This is Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday, and he speaks specifically about that uh, Korean-owned business being targeted with racist graffiti here, and then he talks a little bit more about racism in B.C. Here's Premier John Horgan. And it's absolutely reprehensible that a, a business would be isolated because of the uh, ethnicity of the people who operate it. It's just not acceptable in British Columbia. And uh, if those uh, perpetrators are caught, they can expect the full force of the law to come down upon them. There is no space in British Columbia for that type of behavior. I know talking to Del Manic, the chief of police here in Victoria, as well as observing uh, the good work of the Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP that I travel with uh, regularly uh, within the law enforcement community there is zero tolerance for racism when you look at the diversity of law enforcement of fire crews of our legislature the diversity of our communities is now being reflected in our public institutions and there is zero tolerance for this type of behavior in British Columbia and if these perpetrators are caught they can expect the full weight of the law to come down upon them we're working cooperatively uh, whether it be the leader of the opposition offering suggestions of how we can beef up our anti-racism plan or the Green Party also suggesting ways that they think that we could better work together uh, to speak with one voice on this very, very important issue. I'm the son of an Irish immigrant, and uh, I have not experienced racism, but I am as, as new to Canada as anyone else. Indigenous peoples have been here for thousands of years. The rest of us came from somewhere else with the hope of a better life for ourselves and our families. That's what's made this country spectacular, and that's the strength of British Columbia. Racism is not on. we got to stamp it out. We all have to do that together. 
All right. Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday he also said that if people witness uh, any racist incidents, that he encourages people to intervene, to stand up and to speak out about it. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Mira Oreck. She used to work for Premier John Horgan, former director of stakeholder relations there. She's now the executive director of the Hussein Foundation. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Mira. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. What did you think about what uh, listening to Horgan there? What did you think about what he had to say? I'm really glad he made such a strong statement. I'm glad he made a, <clears throat> a statement at all, but I'm glad it was so strongly worded and so forceful. I think people need to hear from political leadership at this time um, about the racist incidences that have been occurring all over the province and all over the country. Um, and and I think, you know, we're going to need to, unfortunately, we're going to need to continue to hear that um, and to talk about it in the systemic way that it exists. These, unfortunately, are not one-off incidences. They're part of a much larger structural challenge that exists um, in our society, in our province. And so I'm glad to hear him addressing it, taking suggestions and taking action. Yeah. Yeah, he's also encouraging citizens, if they witness any kind of a racist remark or incident, that he encourages them to speak up about it and not remain silent. He says, I'm grateful to see citizens standing up to racism when they see it. We need to do that with increasing regularity. I know, Mira, that you've uh, you've talked about it, a, a, an incident that you witnessed yourself and you spoke up about it. Tell me about that. Um, so last week I was in one of these long physical distancing lineups at Home Hardware or outside Home Hardware on Commercial Drive. I was with my son um, and I heard a little bit of commotion um, behind me and um, sort of caught my attention and I turned around and there was a woman in the line who was... Um, yelling at someone else in the line who was a person of Chinese descent and um, and was essentially telling him to go back to Wuhan and that, she, that he was going to make her sick. And I was honestly startled that I was hearing what I was hearing coming out of her mouth. Um, he didn't respond and no one else in the line said anything. And I just thought, I can't listen to this and not say something. And I relate to people who have hesitation, like, what are you supposed to say in this yeah. moment? And should you intervene? But I just said to her, like, that's not acceptable. And um, I, you know, there were other people around, I knew I would, I was okay. And that I, I could sense that the, vic- that the victim was, o- was okay with a response. And um, she said, you know, I know people are, I know people that are dying from this, you know, basically get away from me to the man. And I said, it doesn't justify it. And that was the end of it, and the the man ended up we ended up being in the store at the same time, and he just gave me a nod and a thank you. Um, I was not obviously the victim of this in any way, and I felt the sting of her hate. It's it was palpable, um, and the man made himself invisible. He pulled down his sunglasses and lifted up his mask, and that's just not an acceptable way for people to be treated at all in our city or in our province. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and good for, good for you for speaking up. Do you, you think it's tough for people to speak up? I mean, you mentioned that there were other people in the store who kind of remained silent, and I, I, when I listen to the Premier this week encouraging people to speak up, if you hear something, if you see something, that don't be silent, speak up and intervene and say something, it's kind of hard to do that, though. It takes some courage. You know, I mean, it, certainly if you're the victim, it takes courage, um, yeah. and I, it shouldn't all be on the people who are 
um, you know, receiving this kind of hate. Um, so I think it is on others if they feel safe to do so. And, and you know, you don't have to know what you're going to say or um, part of it is just making an intervention in the moment and, and calling it out. And um, I heard someone last week from the organization Holla Back um, offering mm. bystanders, you know, some ideas around intervention. So I think it's, it is up to us knowing how, um, prevalent this is right now. This is, you know, racism is a virus, is a real thing right now. And I think it's on us who, as a white person, I'm not as impacted by this kind of hatred. Um, it's on all of us to have to pick up some skills on how to actually respond. Right, right. What were some of those, uh, what's some of the advice that you've heard for people if they do see something or they hear something? What should people do? Um, a part of it is like making sure that you're safe, um, if yeah. possible, um, making sure that the trying to get the OK of the person who's actually being impacted in this case, you know, that can be hard to do. Um, I'm, I'm not saying one shouldn't do it, but that can be hard to do in the moment. Um, but really just uh, thinking about, you know, stepping in and saying something, even if you don't know exactly what it's going to be to sort of seize the conversation from happening. Right. Um, yeah. Right. How did you feel when you when you spoke up there in that in that situation? How did you feel? Was it that kind of a scary kind of nerve wracking thing for you? How did what was going through your mind there? I mean, there was a moment of, um, you know, is this person going to now come after me? Yeah, um, right. But not really, and I certainly, I, I there were enough other people around. I don't know if I was by myself in the dark on the street if I would have said something. Yeah. In fairness, um, but I knew that I was, you know, relatively safe, and um, and it didn't seem that heated, you know, from from her end, um, to begin with. So yes, I had some hesitation, and and. Um, I relate to others that do, you know, yeah. I can say as a Jewish person, I, you know, I really, I grew up hearing so much about this kind of thing from my grandfather who would experience this all the time growing up in the prairies. And so I have a visceral reaction to hearing others, you know, being called out in a racist way. And I, yeah. um, I, I just felt the need to say something. And I think most people do. And I will say, you know, something that I've been, both saddened and heartened by is the number of people that have reached out since then to it, tell me that they've been experiencing fear or that they don't want their parents to go out or um, to thank me for saying something like this is so much more prevalent right. than I think we're appreciating. Right. I think your story really resonated with a lot of people. Mira, thank you for sharing it today and thanks for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. Okay. Earlier today, there was a news conference by TransLink announcing some of the new measures to combat the spread of COVID-19 on the transit system. There will be more cleaning of TransLink vehicles, new measures to encourage physical distancing on SkyTrain platforms as well. And also TransLink now recommending the use of non-surgical face masks when you're on the transit system. So this is not a requirement or mandatory TransLink recommending the use of face masks on the transit system. Craig Cameron is my guest. He's a West Vancouver City Councillor. He's been uh, tweeting about this issue the last couple of days. Hey, Councillor, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. What do you think about the announcement from TransLink today? Do you think they should have gone all the way and said uh, masks should be mandatory on the transit system? Okay, so in answer to your first question about whether TransLink should mandate masks, I don't believe 
that Transink has the power to do that, nor the ability to enforce it. Yeah. Um, so it really would be up to the provincial health authorities. Uh, I think what TransLink has announced today is, is obviously uh, a very prudent step, increased cleaning and, and, and more spacing on the platforms. But the mask issue may end up c- coming up um, in, in, sooner or later because the reality is without masks, there's a limited number of people you can put on a bus or, or a SkyTrain safely. Yeah. So it ends up becoming a capacity issue. Right now, we're functioning at about one-third capacity in the system because we have half the seats are, are closed off and no standing room on buses. Right. And as, people come, as, as the economy restarts, people go back to work. Uh, we're wanting to increase ridership. We're wanting to get people back on the system. But if they, uh, but people don't feel safe on the system, they're not going to come back. And it also won't be safe for our drivers. So that's the real challenge here. So, Councillor, I know you've been doing some informal polling of uh, people online. What are what are your constituents and people telling you about this issue? Do do a lot of people want to see mandatory masks on the system? Well, I mean, the the polling that I did on on Twitter it's obviously highly unscientific and a really small yeah. sample size. But I was surprised that three, about three quarters of the people uh, seem to say that they're okay with mandatory masks on transit. Um, you know, I think the mask issue has obviously been. Uh, evolving as we go along. And, I, you know, Theresa Tam yesterday uh, said nationally, you know, inching towards uh, more, encouraging more mask use. You can even hear uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, right. uh, I believe yesterday, suggested that people should be wearing them on, on buses. But so far, they've stopped short of requiring it, as, as right. many other countries have done. Yeah, do you wear one yourself? I wear a mask uh, when I can't... Uh, when I can't ensure physical distancing and when I go into a place where there's vulnerable people. So I was in a health facility the other day and I did wear a mask in there. But generally speaking, I try to just stay away from uh, other people and not get into crowded situations where, yeah. where physical distancing is hard. One of the if, tough- if I was on transit, I would wear a mask. Let's put it that way. I, I think so, too. I mean, if I was going to be on, going on a, a bus or SkyTrain, I, I kind of like the idea of wear, wearing a mask. The interesting thing is, and this was highlighted by a lot of our callers on this issue today, is that some people say that they cannot wear a mask, whether through a disability or they have asthma or some other sort of respiratory challenge, that wearing a mask is difficult, if not impossible. And that may be the reason why we see officials stopping short of mandatory uh, mask wearing and instead trying to encourage a culture of people wearing a mask voluntarily. Do you think that makes sense? Well, I mean, I suppose in part, there are certainly some people, I think it's probably a relatively small percentage, that can't wear masks for various reasons. But, I mean, I look at places like hospitals and how do they approach that issue. Well, they they may make accommodations for some people, but I think that they still have masks mandatory for everyone else. And it's a collective action problem in that you're not protecting yourself by wearing a mask, you're protecting everyone else. Right. And so unless it's sort of like vaccination, unless everybody or almost everybody's wearing a mask, you're not creating a safe situation. Okay. And so I think we're going to be forced to look at whether to make them mandatory unless people, generally speaking, um, start adopting them voluntarily. All right, Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about those 40th anniversary Adidas running shoes commemorating Terry Fox and the Marathon Hope. They went on sale this week. These are cool-looking shoes, I'll tell you that. 
They're the classic blue three-stripe Adidas. I remember I had shoes like that when I was a kid. Those were the bomb. Those were the shoes you wanted to have when you were a kid, when I was growing up. And those are the shoes that Terry Fox uh, ran used during his Marathon of Hope. Adidas this week issuing a limited edition Terry Fox running shoe to commemorate the Marathon of Hope. 130 bucks for a pair of these shoes. All the proceeds, of course, going to the Terry Fox Foundation for Cancer Research. They sold out in minutes. These things is basically instant sellout online. Not even Terry's brother could get a pair of these things. He tried to get them online. Fred Fox, Terry's older brother, he tried to get a pair of these things online. No chance. They were sold out. Now, you can still get them, though. All you got to do is go on eBay. I'm checking it out right now. There's a bunch of them for sale on there. But, man, you got to break the bank here to buy these things. Now, here's a pair of Terry Fox running shoes on sale on eBay right now. Buy it now. Price $1,500. 1500 bucks for a pair of Terry Fox shoes. Here's another one. Now, this one is this pair is up for auction. Doesn't have a buy it now price. It's got 33 bids. It's over $1,000 right now. 1000 bucks Canadian for a pair of Terry Fox running shoes. Wow. Some people making some big profit on these things. Let's check in with Jim Beatty now. He is a spokesperson for the Terry Fox Center. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hiya, Jim. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing this. Did you try and buy a pair of these shoes yourself? Uh, I wasn't able to get on the uh, on the website to buy some, but we have several members who are on the uh, the Terry Fox uh, Center board, uh, the Terry Fox Foundation, who also tried. They couldn't get on the site, or they couldn't buy anything. You know, you mentioned Fred Fox, who is yeah. one of Terry's brothers. His other brother is Daryl Fox. Daryl tried to get on. He couldn't buy a pair either. So, yeah, they they sold out in about 10 minutes on this uh, website. Uh, We've all been blown away at the the support. Of course, remember, this is a a, a charitable fundraiser. This is this was to raise money is to raise money to to fuel cancer research. This is the 40th year of the Marathon of Hope, and this is a a fundraiser for that uh, Adidas uh, has put on to commemorate the Marathon of Hope and to and to raise money in the fight against cancer. So um, it, it it has very good origins. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, people are now trying to profit off uh, off it uh, on eBay. Yeah, they are. So the profiteers out there trying to uh, sell these shoes, which I guess there's nothing illegal about that. I mean, I, I suppose you got a pair of shoes, you can sell them on eBay. But I don't know, Jim, do you think that's in the Terry Fox spirit, kind of selling these things for a huge markup? No, this is not the Terry Fox way. Um, yeah. Remember, Terry... Uh, Terry was all about selfless uh, determination to do something good, and it wasn't about profit. It wasn't about corporate sponsorships with with Terry. This was about fighting uh, to eliminate cancer, to to get rid of that disease. He he worked so hard. So I mean, I personally view this as as you know distasteful. Um, uh, It's unbecoming of Terry Fox. Uh, he, he he was all about being a, a selfless champion. He became a Canadian hero in the process, but it was all for a common good to eliminate um, cancer from our system, from our communities. And um, this is about profiting. But, you know, what I would say for anybody who wants to go, I'm on eBay right now. Yeah, looking at these prices, I would say to anybody who, who is considering, who didn't get a, a pair of shoes and considering of it, I would say this. 
um, Adidas has said it's going to do additional um, launches of these shoes. There's going to be four more release dates oh, of these shoes over the over the year uh, and into the fall. This is the 40th anniversary year. This is a big deal for for all of us who are working so hard uh, in Terry Fox's memory. So uh, if you want a pair, there's going to be you're going to have four other legitimate opportunities to buy some um, at uh, at a more reasonable cost than. Uh, <laughs> than this kind of exorbitant prices. That's good to know. I hope they make a lot more shoes this time because these things are popular. So that that's great to know. Uh, I think I'd rather wait, just take my chances in getting one legit uh, from Adidas than pay it over a thousand bucks for for a pair of shoes. Um, do you think that eBay, eBay should shut this down? I mean, given the fact that these are shoes that were for charity, uh, does, I don't know if even eBay has policies like that, but do you think they should be told, hey, you should stop this kind of profiteering? I'm not sure that's that that I want to wade into that, or the or the or the folks who are working so hard with Terry Fox want to weigh in with that, ad, you yeah. know, advice to eBay. I suppose this is the the free market. The free market can can do what it wants. That's my personal opinion. I just feel it's 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 not in the spirit of of Terry Fox. It's 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 unbecoming. It's it's. Um, yeah. It's you know we're we're frustrated we're disappointed that this would happen but um, I think the best thing that we can do is to let people know that yes it is a fundraiser uh, if you would like to continue to help that fundraiser and get your hands on a pair of these iconic shoes there's going to be four more chances to do so um, so I'm I'm just hoping right. that the free market has its way and people you know don't buy this and if you do uh, for the profiteers hey we would love we would love if you would donate uh, some of your profits back to the the cause that this is intended for, for right. getting rid of uh, of cancer. Yeah, that would be good. If you've made a big profit in these things, hey, give the money to the Terry Fox Foundation. I would love to see that. Hey, Jim, tell me a little bit about the Terry Fox Center and the work you guys are doing over there. Yeah, well, we're, you know, the Terry Fox Foundation, first let me mention that. Terry sure. Fox Foundation, of course, they run the, the Terry Fox runs every every year. They, uh, they're the, the fundraising arm that have, has raised or helped to raise $750 million uh, in the fight against cancer. Um, at the Terry Fox Center, we're trying to create a center that would commemorate um, uh, Terry's memory, would keep the, the story alive, and, and as well as celebrate those research breakthroughs. And I'll tell you how it began. Uh, a number of years ago when Terry's mom um, was unveiling the statue at BC Place, the statue of Terry at BC Place, Betty Fox at that time said, she said, pretty soon we as Canadians, all of those of us who experienced the Marathon of Hope, who, who felt what it felt like to experience it, won't be around any longer to tell other Canadians what it felt like. We've been 40 years since that Marathon of Hope. So she said, we need to have a place for all things Terry. And that began the the process to try to create a Terry Fox Center, a place where people can go to to see the artifact, to see that jug of uh, of water that he collected from the Atlantic Ocean, to see the letters that Canadians wrote to him, to see uh, all all kinds of memorabilia, fifty thousand artifacts. The van, the van is so wow. iconic. 
so we've been trying to create this center, um, hopefully in Vancouver, uh, that would tell the Marathon of Hope story, keep the story alive, uh, but also tell the other half of the story. What happened with the money? Where, where did that $750 million go? Let's celebrate the Canadian achievements that we've had in, in making cancer a better diagnosis today than it was when, when he was around. But still, we're not, we're not there yet. But um, we're working to try to create this facility in Vancouver. Lots of people say it should be in Toronto. Lots of people say oh. it should be in Ottawa. That's our nation's oh. capital. Uh, we believe um, Terry is from British Columbia, you know, that Port Coquitlam hero that he was. We right. believe it should be uh, somewhere in Vancouver, and we're, uh, we're continuing to, uh, to work at, at making that uh, a reality. I agree with you. I think there'll be an awesome f- something to, to achieve in, in Vancouver, and I hope it happens for you guys at the Terry Fox Center for, sh- for sure. And the artifacts that are still preserved, I mean, talk about a wonderful experience for people to be able to, to see some of these things. Like you said, the van, um, I believe like Terry's leg, you know, his, his shoes, I mean, the, the stuff that he was wearing, the stories, I mean, I think it's just a natural for a kind of a museum or a center to tell the Terry Fox story. Uh, that stuff must be incredible to see. Well, here's something. Here's something shocking for you, Mike. Yeah. Um, there are. Th- there is no place in Canada you can go right now to see that. This yeah. is our number one Canadian hero. There've been s- surveys after surveys, uh, public opinion polls. Who's the Who's the top hero in Canada? Terry Fox is is always um, uh, at the at the top of that list. You can't go. There's no place to see. There's no museum. These artifacts are not on display anywhere. The, the everything is in, in is in is in a warehouse. Is in a storage locker right now. It's it's shameful. The United States celebrates uh, its heroes. Uh, you know, there's a Wayne uh, a, a Will Rogers Museum. There's a John Wayne Museum. There's there's all kinds of museums that the, the Americans use to celebrate um, who they consider their their uh, cultural heroes here right. in Canada. We haven't done the same, and we're trying to. We we feel that that's wrong, and we feel we need to. We we can right that wrong um, by having a museum, a place that people can go to to learn about Terry Fox, learn about why he did what he did, to learn about what good it has caused since then, um, and a place that you know even a cancer survivor could go to find some 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 respite. You know, um, yeah. there's some some incredible. It's an incredible legacy, and and we believe it should be celebrated more. We believe. It's a national project. We would love it if the if the federal government got behind this project and said, you know what, this we need to do this for Terry. We need to do this for all Canadians. Okay, I love it. I hope it happens for you guys for sure. And I think it's awesome the work that you're doing over there. Like, are you guys doing some fundraising on it, or are you just appealing to government for help? Or how can people get behind this idea and make it happen? Well, the the best thing is is stay tuned. We're working we're working on all that. Um, we've had uh, a, a number of initiatives that um, uh, that that we've been working on. Part of the the the, the pr- trouble that we've had uh, is is a little bit of Terry's legacy himself. You know, this was a person who who believed in selflessness. He believed that yes. Canadians should be treated equally. If you give a dollar, you should be treated the same as if you give a hundred dollars. So uh, he didn't believe in corporate sponsorship. So um, we could probably have this all said and done if we called this, you know, the Adidas Terry Fox Center or 
or the yeah. Ford Center for, you know, Terry Fox. But that was not Terry. Again, we're, we're taking the harder road here uh, by trying to, to do this through smaller donations, through, um, through legwork, through hard, because we're not going to take the big naming rights that um, right. so many organizations do, because that was not the Terry Fox way. Um, so stay tuned. We're working hard. Uh, we would love your support. Please uh, go to our, our website, uh, Terry Fox Center. Check out our website. We've got a great Facebook post. Every day we're posting um, uh, uh, words from Terry's journal. I mean, he'd be still running right now, um, uh, you know, somewhere in eastern Canada uh, today. Every day we post where he'd be running. So check out our social media. Stay tuned. We would love any support uh, that anybody could give us um, as uh, as we keep up the fight. Awesome, Jim. I love it, man. Thank you for the good work you're doing over there, and good luck with it. Appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. Okay, thank you. As Jim Beatty, he's the communications director at the Terry Fox Center, uh, talking about those Terry Fox Adidas shoes sold out in minutes. Uh, yeah, a lot of profiteering going on with those shoes on eBay. But like Jim said, don't worry. Adidas will be making more of these shoes, and more of them will be on sale later. So before you part with your money on eBay, just remember, they're going to be selling more of these shoes later uh, in the year.